We are actually going to finish our verse-by-verse study of Philippians today, chapter 4. Verses 14 through 23, a fragrant aroma is the title. Uh, Once you've got it in front of you, if you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Philippians 4, we're picking it up at verse 14. Those teenagers are a little too excited, I think. I don't know. But they did win the competition. Isn't that cool? So, yeah. Anyway, I knew we were all winners at Living Truth. Didn't you guys already know that? Nevertheless, Philippians 4, 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. A fragrant aroma, there's our title, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory, be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. But just like a preacher, Paul's not done. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful congregation gathered on the Lord's day. We are gathered to hear from you. We are hungry for you, Lord. And thank you for the beautiful last section in the Philippian letter. We have enjoyed such a wonderful time in this letter. So many rich insights into our Christian walk into contentment, into how to overcome anxiety, how to run the race set before us as we look to you, Lord, how to live with purpose. And it seems like it's ended too quickly, Lord, but we're grateful for this last section and the beautiful images, the one that we've put in the title of a life as a sweet-smelling aroma to our God. We want to live in such a way that pleases you and we have some incredible insights into how to do that at the end of Philippians. And so, Father, our desire is to please you in all respects. So give us ears to hear what you would say to your people in this hour. May you be pleased in the way we both teach and respond to the word of God. And may you be glorified in this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So a fragrant aroma, Paul will give us two major metaphors in the last section of Philippians, one from the business world, uh, the idea of investment in business, and one from the sacrificial world in the sense of the offering going up to God as a fragrant aroma to God. And Paul is really saying to the Philippian church, thank you. He's giving thanks to them. You can see it in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well, or well done. We are all desirous to hear from Jesus on that day, that last day, if you will. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? 
So you have done well, or well done, Philippians, to share with me in my affliction. Now, Paul is writing from Roman imprisonment, house arrest right now. But Paul had gone through a lot of affliction to get the gospel into regions like Philippi. And the Philippian church saw Paul's heart, his gospel compulsion, if you will, to get the uh, gospel out to the Roman world, and they were grateful. And one way that they showed their gratitude is in giving. Now, I say giving, and I can feel some people tensing up, whether you're here or watching or will watch this later, and there's a reason for that. Because the naysayers of the Christian church have two primary critiques of us. One, they say the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. You've heard that before. And then the second thing that you'll hear is that they're only in it for the money. Well, I will tell you that though people will hang their hat on those excuses, and we've probably given them a fair amount of fodder or reason to do so, let's face it, we've had uh, you know, television preachers and people come from churches where they felt nothing but manipulated for their money. And on behalf of all pastors who are trying to do the right thing, I apologize if that's been your experience. Because it certainly has happened, and it's sad, but the truth of the matter is that giving is a New Testament concept. And we open up our whole lives to God, our time, talent, and treasure unto our God. And there is balance in this particular teaching. It's not all about what we give. It's actually Paul's more concerned about an account that we have in heaven, and we just read about it, an account which continues to uh, multiply in interest. And here's the truth of the matter. The only thing that you're going to send ahead to heaven is the money that you invested in the kingdom of God. Amen? Jesus, boy, that was a weak amen at the beginning. You're like, right, 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 right. <laughs> amen? amen? Now, Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. The writer of Ecclesiastes, looking at it from the other side, lamented. It was Solomon at the end of his life, and he talked about how he pursued pleasure in, uh, you know, uh, the normal means of, uh, you know, the physical pleasures, the building projects, the, the, all the stuff. But here's what he said. He said, it's all vanity. It's all like chasing the wind. He said, because I'm going to leave it to somebody else. Everything I have built, everything I've invested in or, you know, projects that I thought out and spent years building, I'm going to leave it to somebody else and I don't know how they're going to take care of it. They, they may blow it in the first month. Who knows? You're not going to take any of it with you. The only money that you're going to send ahead or whatever else the Lord's going to do is what you invested in the kingdom of God. That's the only thing that's going to truly last. But the question becomes in the Christian church whether or not that's the reality of how I live and how you live. Whether or not my life is really kind of on that trajectory where I know what's going to truly last. We all say we believe in eternity, but I'm not sure we're preparing too well for it. I, we had an evangelism team that was going door to door some years back. And they came to a door with a young man who was 
uh, just off to college, and they began to engage him about the gospel and so forth. And he had everything planned out. He, he had his college. He knew what he was going to do for a living. He knew what he was going to do next, et cetera, et cetera, where he wanted to retire, et cetera. And one of the evangelists, prompted by the Holy Spirit, said, well, what are you going to do after you die? And it kind of rocked the young man's world because he had no, made no preparation for something that is an inevitable reality. <laughs> we all have a ticket that we're going to punch one day and we're going to end up in eternity, right? And so that's the truth of the matter. And Paul is really not pressuring the Philippian church He's thanking them. And that's one thing that you need to see at the outset of this message. Paul is saying, thank you for sharing with me. I'm so grateful. And I will tell you that giving is a sign of spiritual health. It's really kind of an outgrowth of contentment. I came across this story. It's Mrs. Bertha Adams died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday. The coroner's report read, cause of death, malnutrition. She wasted away to 50 pounds. When the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of Mrs. Adams' home, they found a veritable pig pen. One said, the biggest mess you could ever imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he'd never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. The woman had begged for food from neighbors, back doors, gotten what clothing she could from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was penniless, a, re- a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. But such was not really the case. Amid the jumble of her unclean, disheveled belongings, the officials found two keys to safe deposit boxes at two different local banks. In the first box were over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, Solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash amounting to nearly $200,000. The second box contained $600,000, adding the net worth of both boxes well over a million dollars. This is back in the day. Charles Osgood, reporting the story on CBS Radio, announced that the estate would probably go to a distant niece and nephew, neither of whom dreamed their aunt had a thin dime to her name. Can you imagine picking up the phone and hearing that you just inherited half a million? Why, this writer says, I wouldn't know whether to shout glory, dance the jig, wind my watch, or whistle Dixie, or sing the doxology. You can count on this, friend. Those two relatives are awfully glad Aunt Bertha still had their names lying around. But don't you wonder about this woman? Why, oh why, would anybody salt away that bread in two tiny boxes, month after month, year after year, and refused to spend even enough food to stay alive. Fact is, Bertha Adams wasn't saving her money, says this writer. She was worshiping it, hoarding it, gaining a twisted satisfaction out of watching the stacks grow higher as she shuffled along the streets wearing the garb of a beggar. And somehow, some way, we can get the idea that if we just continue to stack wealth here, we're doing great. And we might get so weird about it, so miserly about it, that it becomes literally our God, the God of mammon. Some of you have heard about Howard Hughes, and he was one of the wealthiest people in the world. He was a recluse, kind of a weird guy. And at the end of his life, he knew he was dying 
and he went into a, a total uh, recluse state, didn't cut his hair, his fingernails. I think his sheets were changed a handful of times in two years. He wrote letters to a business partner with the weirdest stuff about how to fold a napkin or handle something with a tissue. It was bizarre. He had literally lost his mind. And he was so concerned about his stuff. He couldn't sleep at night because he was worried about his stuff. He wasn't free. He was literally enslaved to his stuff. Now, the Lord wants us to be free, free to give, free to give our lives, our time, our talent, and our treasure to what will really last. And I do think that the devil's done a great job in the professing Christian church of turning many people off even to the idea of giving. I'll give you an example. Sometimes pastors have come out, I don't know if they mean well, understand this or not, and they'll try to put New Testament Christians under the Malachi curse from Malachi chapter three. Or if you are an Italian, the Malachi curse. <laughs> Malachi three was not written to the New Testament church. It was written to Old Testament Israel. And if you lived in Old Testament Israel, if you're going to give a tithe, a tithe was 23 and a third percent of your income because there were three different tithes and one tithe for the poor was once every three years. It amounted to almost one quarter of your income. Now, if some of you want to come back under the law, talk to us after the service. You know, we'll, we'll be on board. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but what happens is they'll say something like this to people. Unless you tithe, you're under the curse of Malachi. That is a lie. Because Jesus Christ became a curse for us on the cross, that the curse would be reversed and we would be free in Jesus. You are under no curse, my brother, my sister. Don't let anybody do that nonsense to you. However, I will say this. The principle of the tithe is a pretty good thing to think about in it that it's a good place perhaps for you to start thinking about giving. But you are not under the law. You are under what? You are under grace. The Lord doesn't want your obligatory percentages. He wants your life. He does, he's not impressed with the writing of checks as much as he is with the openness of one's heart. He said to Old Testament Israel, don't offer me one more sacrifice because I know how you're doing it. You're doing it to perhaps appease me or whatever you're doing, but your heart's not in it. Don't offer one more bull, one more sacrifice. Don't do it because your hearts are far away from me. Any obligatory giving in the kingdom of God is not God's heart for you. What God wants is an open life. He wants us to be so grateful for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver, and when we give, we show the heart of God. And I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about your investment in people, your investment in the kingdom of God, your investment in using your spiritual gifts, in prioritizing, attending worship services, etc., this, is, this says a lot about our lives, about what's really important to me, not some obligatory thing that someone forces me to do that makes me think I'm in good standing with God. Now, uh, 
In the, in the approach, if you go to 1 Corinthians, just a few pages back, of living truth, I want to share something with you that we decided some years back. Because there's so much manipulation around the topic of giving, we have attempted as a leadership team at Living Truth, and you may not have known this, but I'm going to let you in on the secret, to distance ourselves as much as possible from that kind of stuff. And so what we've attempted to do is we only teach on giving when we're in a, uh, the topic of giving as we teach through the Bible. And it doesn't come up very often as you teach through the Bible. It's really just a handful of text. So that's why you don't hear me talk about it much. We don't do special giving Sundays. We don't do Sundays where we take triple offerings or anything like that. Now the next offering is for the, you know, the, the sewing ministry or whatever. We don't do that, even though I know that would be... <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, you get the point. We've attempted to distance ourselves from that stuff because we don't want to stumble anybody. Now, take a look at 1 Corinthians 9. This is what Paul said. He was applauding the Philippian church, but he had some issues with the Corinthian church. Notice, 1 Corinthians 9, 11 says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? 1 Corinthians 9, 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? We're going to go to an Old Testament text which has to, a lot to do with this in a moment. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But, says Paul, I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things that it may be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now Paul said, when I went into Corinth, since I knew that there were philosophers in the first century who went into cities like Corinth and peddled their philosophies for money, I decided not to use my right, though it was my right to make the li my living from the, 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 the resources of God's people for the gospel. I chose not to do that because I did not want anyone to be stumbled or to have money be a hindrance to the gospel. And you have to stand back and applaud Paul for that. And Paul made tents. He was a tent maker by trade. But here's the reality of what happened. Paul had to spend extra time making tents and took it away from the gospel time because he didn't want to stumble anybody. And you can see that it is important that one can give themselves fully to the work of the ministry. This is something I've had the privilege of doing since the year 2000. I was ordained in 1995. I came out of the business world. And so I was in really corporate America for uh, many years and I became the senior pastor of this church, and we've changed names and locations since, but they made me the senior pastor in 1998. Uh, so we had a, a really young family. We were struggling financially, and I was preaching at the church, senior pastor of the church, and working a full-time job. And I will tell you that I think there's even some benefit in that. I think there's benefit in that it will kind of make you ask some questions about your motivation. Uh, 
just to give you an idea of what I was making, they would pay me $200 a Sunday to preach. That was the income I was getting from the church. And even way back in the late 90s, that wasn't a whole lot of money. If you quickly calculate, it was about $800 a month. But the church grew slowly, and eventually they were able to put me on full-time, and this is my 22nd year. And I will say this. I am so grateful to the people of God, and I want to say thank you to you guys, because you have allowed me and the rest of this staff to focus on the gospel. And I spend my week in preparation and prayer. I, we have a, a radio ministry that's going all around the world. We're supporting multiple missionaries. This church, you have done well in partnering in the gospel. And I think that's something that we need to say more often from pulpits. Thank you. Thank you. Because you've given sacrificially to the cause of Christ. And we can do what we do because you give. And I know you give it to the Lord, but you get the idea. When my wife and I were first believers and we were trying to navigate the things of the Christian life, we kind of joked back and forth. We thought maybe there was a secret government fund that was funding the church. And all God's people said, no way. (laughs) Anything we do is from what you give. We have no secret government fund. No rich aunt or uncle, no Mrs. Bertha somewhere who gave us a ton of money. We are supporting and sharing in the ministry together. We have a partnership in the most important things in all the world. And when Paul opens the letter, if you flip back to Philippians for a moment, he says these words in chapter 1 to the Philippian church. This was their heart from the very beginning, and you, you Some of what you're hearing here, they're a very young church, but they seem to have gotten this idea very young in their journey. He says these words about them. This is Philippians 1.3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for y'all, which means Paul was from the south. In view, Philippians 1.5, of your participation That is a joint partnership or fellowship. What was it in? In the gospel. From the first day until now. This church from the first day was on board in supporting Paul. And it was something like this. They said, Paul, you came into the Philippian region, into Philippi, and you preached and our lives have been changed forever. And we want you to go to the next town and do the same thing. And in order for us to put feet to our faith, we're going to give you, we're going to try to take care of your needs, to free you up, to preach to others. We want everybody to hear this life-saving message. And I think giving does reveal the priorities of our heart. And I'm not talking just about monetary stuff. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about uh, your your, uh, resources, etc. And so this church, Philippians 4.14, just to bring it home one more time, did well in sharing with Paul in his affliction. He says, well done. I applaud you. And then he says in verse 15, for you yourselves know, also know Philippians 4.15, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, that's the area where Philippi was, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. These are commercial terms from kind of the business world. 
commercial language, transactions on a ledger, if you will. No one, no church shared with me in giving and receiving, but you alone or you only. You were the only church who supplied my need. Now, can you imagine that? But I will tell you, having been in this position for a long time, and I know missionaries who are in the room and others who could bear witness to this, will tell you that missionaries rarely are fully funded in the Christian world. You know that? Most people who go on overseas missions do not have full funding from the people of God. And it it really causes me to step back and ask some questions about our priorities. Or as an elder said, you know, he got up during the offering time and he addressed the congregation. He said, I have some good news and bad news this morning. The good news is that we have plenty of resources to take care of everything in our budget for the next 10 years. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. So, anyway. And all God's people said, yep. (laughs) So what we do with our resources is a window into our souls. It is a window into our priorities. And I will tell you that we grow in this. We certainly do grow. You know, uh, you become a Christian, you don't even, you, you don't understand a lot of things. So there's a process of maturation. It's like, you know, about what you should be doing and how do you prioritize such things, etc. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 to the Corinthian church. He says, I robbed other churches, 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, that's the area of Philippi, they fully supplied my need, and in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. Paul said to the Corinthian church, I robbed other churches to serve you. And God forbid that that would take place. But we do know that there's areas of the world where maybe the resources are not as great. And so oftentimes the American church has stepped into many gaps and it's been a beautiful uh, honoring of the Lord. It's really shown in many ways our priorities. Paul's continuing to rejoice and commend the Philippians says this in verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, now some of you might remember that Acts 16 is the story of the planting of the Philippian church, Lydia the servant girl, uh, the Philippian jailer. Those stories are there. And then Paul and uh, Silas are forced to leave Philippi. They, they say, basically, get out of our town. And the very next town, Acts 17, was Thessalonica. And Paul says, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. This church apparently had a regularly uh, a regular um, Uh, attitude of giving to the Apostle Paul. And they sent gifts to Paul continuously. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the prophet. If you have a New King James, it says the fruit, ESV, the same. I seek not the gift itself, just to clarify, but for the prophet or fruit which which increases, this is a present participle signifying continual multiplication And then he says, the prophet to your account. 
Apparently, we have an account in heaven. And every time we do something for the kingdom of God, God has a record of it. And it continues to multiply. Now, many of you have 401ks in the room. And your company may have had some sort of profit sharing or something. And, and so it's good that you set up a 401k if you're just starting out in a company because you can put money tax deferred in there and it will build up and it's invested in stocks and stuff like that. And I've got one of those too. And I was feeling pretty good about it a while back. But, <laughs> but in the last six months to a year, however long, never mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get political. Um, it, has, it has suffered. Let's just put it this way. And right now it's a number on paper. And if it's invested wisely, it will have a return for my wife and I, you know, in our golden years. But our true golden years are not going to be here. Our true golden years are way ahead of us. Amen? And the Bible talks about streets of gold and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, there, the things on this earth, we can make all, you know, and we, and we should be wise, we, we can make all the plans that we want, but all we're going to truly send ahead is right here in an eternal account that God is keeping in heaven. And I wonder, and this is just for me, what mine looks like right now. I wonder how on that day when I stand before the one who gave himself for me and came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, and the one who reached down and saved me from my sin at the highest cost imaginable, I wonder what he will say about my investment in the kingdom of God. Because that's the only one I'm going to answer for. I wonder how my account's doing. Again, I want to reassure you, this is not just about monetary giving. I believe it's about sacrifice in all areas of life. But Paul talks about a prophet that continues to pay eternal dividends. And this is an orientation of our hearts and minds that must be considered. Spiritual fruit that is ahead of us. An investment in the things of the kingdom of God. Perhaps we will meet people in eternity who will say it's because of something you did that I heard the gospel. And I believe that the Lord will even reward us for those things because he's so wonderfully gracious. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Jesus put it this way, give and it will be given to you. Luke 6, 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And so the picture painted by these accounting metaphors is of compound interest, says Peter T. O'Brien, that accumulates all the time until that last day. And it's a beautiful promise that God is going to honor what we gave for the gospel. And so Paul 
now switching from com commercial terms to sacrificial language from the Old Testament, says th these words, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, verse 18, Philippians 4, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And now he paints the picture of the gift, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, I want you to turn just a few pages back to Ephesians chapter 5, just the book before Philippians, and take a look at something that's said about Jesus and his offering for us. Here's what it says. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, notice, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, the Ephesian church is also given this sacrificial language, and they're exhorted to walk in love, just as Christ loved us. They should love one another. We should love one another. Now, you might say, well, how do I do that? Because my natural proclivity might be just the opposite, or to be selfish, etc. So what do I do? How do we change? It's in the previous chapter. Paul's teaching about the old self and the new self. And he says this, look at 4.22 of Ephesians. That in reference to your former manner of life, you will lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created or recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, Paul will talk about uh, not lying, not letting the sun go down on your anger, not giving the devil an opportunity. And in Ephesians 4.28, he says this, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. In other words, if you want to live the priorities of the kingdom, you must put on the new self. What does that mean? It means every time you clothe yourself with the priorities of the kingdom, you are filled with the Spirit, you are put on the armor of God, you're clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ, you get a new mindset, a new orientation into your priorities of living, and it will be extremely countercultural for you to think in this way. And it may even be opposite much of the church culture who seems to be very enamored with self. The, the Enneagram that we're going to deal with next Sunday has a lot to do with that. Now, some people don't know its origins, but the Enneagram is all about self and self-realization and finding the divinity within. <laughs> Genesis 3 ain't going to work, man. It's the oldest lie in the book. Now, when Paul reaches into this metaphor from the sacrificial world, uh, we're going to go all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 29, and I'm going to just set the backdrop for you. Many of you know we've been teaching through Exodus on Wednesday nights, and I just taught this passage, and I don't think that this is happenstance. I believe this is the providential hand of God. Let me tell you what's going on in Exodus 29. The tabernacle, uh, Moses is receiving instructions for the tent, which will then become the future physical temple, and he's been getting instructions about the uh, Ark of the Covenant and how the whole structure is to be built. 
And the text transitions to the priests, Aaron and his sons. Aaron, the first high priest, his sons will be in line for the priesthood. And so uh, in, in chapter 28, the priestly garments are laid out. The, the crown that says holy to the Lord, the, the vestments, they're very specific about how the garments are laid out. And then the priests go through something called an ordination ceremony. That ceremony laid out in Exodus 29. The closest thing I could say to you that might kind of be familiar to us is the ordination of a pastor into the ministry. So the, the, the father and sons are being ordained. They're going from lay people, kind of, you know, maybe normal parts of the congregation, into being consecrated into the priesthood. And there's a sacrifice, and there's ceremonial washings, and there's uh, arrayed in the vestments of the priest, and there's the anointing of oil, and all this incredible process is going on, including uh, the sacrifice of three different animals. Now, we're going to with that backdrop, take a look at Exodus 29. Look at verse 18. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a soothing aroma. Now there's our idea. An offering by fire to the Lord. Then you shall take the other ram. This is a second sacrifice. And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. Confessing their sins is the idea. You shall slaughter the ram... And take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the lobes of his son's right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And sprinkle the rest of the blood around the altar, or around on the altar. Now here's what happens. As they put on the, the vestments of the, the new position that they're in, consecrated, ordained, they go through the, the various aspects of the ceremony and then a sacrifice is offered and they take the blood of that animal and put it on their ear, their thumb of their right hand and on their right foot. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Here's what's happening. It's a picture of being under the blood, consecrated unto God so that my ear is now open to my master. My hands now do what he wants me to do in touching the holy things. My feet walk where he would want me to go. It is a total consecration to God, wherein Aaron and his sons and the priestly line are set apart to serve the Lord in spirit and in truth. And there's very specific things that they have to do, including this offering. Now notice what happens next. So then you shall take 21, some of the blood that is on the altar, some of the anointing oil, Sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments with him. So he and his, so he and his garments shall be consecrated, keyword, as well as sons and his son's garments with him. You shall also take the fat of the ram and the fat tail. This may help some of your diets today. So you can thank me for this. <laughs> and the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver. And the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination. One cake of bread, one cake of bread mixed with oil, one, one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread, which is set before the Lord. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, as the ceremony winds down, the application of the blood, then they take unleavened bread and parts of the animal that will be sacrificed to God God always gets the first offering. 
and they wave it before the Lord. Now, this is where the wave, you know, the wave that happens in stadiums all around. This is where it originates, the book of Exodus. Ha! No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's not. That's not a proper interpretation of the text. We don't actually know what they did, but the word to wave has the idea of holding it up, and it's possible that they did something like this before the Lord, and then they offered it in fire. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000 in all four Gospels, a little boy brought his lunch, you remember? And he had the five loaves and two fish, and he offered what he had. And the Gospel accounts say something interesting. They say that Jesus took the fish and the bread, and, he, and his eyes went up to heaven, and we don't know if he did this with it or not. The text does not say but I had uh, one of our uh, young leaders email me this week, and he said, when you were preaching in Exodus 29, we've been studying the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. And he goes, I wonder, did Jesus do something like that? So I called my rabbi friend, Rabbi Robert, and I said, Rabbi, what do you think about this? And he goes, I, I don't know for sure. He goes, it's kind of interesting. Think about it. Jesus is our high priest. He takes the offering of a little boy. Did he hold it up to heaven? I said, well, what would he have prayed, Rabbi? And he said, we probably would have prayed the traditional prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Did he hold it up? I don't know. But then you know that it went out and it, and it was shared with the whole 5,000 plus women and children, maybe 15, 20,000 people. Our great high priest, did he wave it? I don't know. But we do know this. His life, his whole life, was an offering unto God. And we are to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so in this uh, ordination ceremony, as these men are consecrated to the work of the Lord, they wave it, and then look what happens. You shall take them from their hands, this is after they wave it, and offer them up in smoke on the altar, the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before the Lord. Now, this is the imagery in, in uh, Philippians 4. It is an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, if you go on reading, then they get to partake of uh, different parts of the animal. They share in a meal, a communion meal with the Lord in the tabernacle. But here's the beauty of this image. It's a life that is now fully consecrated to God and offers to God their uh, resources, if you will, as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Sometimes, you know, you'll have a neighbor barbecuing chicken or burgers. You ever had this experience? You're doing work in the backyard, you're like, where's that smell coming from? It can't be my house. <laughs> and then you think to yourself, I wish I would have been nicer to that neighbor. Probably would have invited me over for a barbecue. Here's the image. When we live this way, and remember, Philippians is written to a new Testament church, if you turn back to Philippians 4, and we'll finish it up. When we live in this way, brethren, please hear this. Our lives become a pleasing aroma to our God. And the image is of a barbecue and God going like this. That is sweet. Look at that. So maybe you've done something for somebody lately where there was no fanfare, Maybe you showed up, you brought a meal, you prayed for somebody in the hospital, you visited the sick, etc. When you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And every time 
Something like that happens. I believe the image that God wants us to see is him going, that is good or well done. Good and faithful servant. You don't have to wait till the last day to know that that's what your father thinks when you do well. Amen? We might say it this way. Good job. Well done. You've done nobly. You've done well. Whenever you do something like that for my glory, it's sweet. Now, there are stories in the Old Testament where people groups, you know, the Lord kept warning and warning and the actions of even the people of Israel became a stench in God's nostrils. That's not what we want. And this is not about salvation here. This is about how the Philippians chose to give. So we know this is not whether or not we're right in God's sight. We're saved by Christ, but we know there's something we can do in the way we choose to live time, talent, and resources that does go up and please God, that is an acceptable sacrifice to my God. And that's the beauty of a life lived well. And so it does cause, I think, all of us just to step back and ask some big questions about time, talent, resources. Am I engaging my spiritual gift? Do I serve the Lord, etc.? This is an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasing aroma, and it's uh, said in concert with what Christ did, well-pleasing to God. A preacher came to a farmer and asked, if you had $200, would you give $100 of it to the Lord? I would, said the farmer. If you had two cows, would you give one of them to the Lord? Sure, said the farmer. If you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? The farmer said, now that's not fair, preacher. You know I have two pigs. I like conceptual ideas, not reality. An African boy listened carefully as his teacher explained why it is that Christians give presents to each other on Christmas Day. The gift said the teacher, is an expression of our joy over the birth of Jesus and our friendship for each other. Well, when Christmas Day came, the boy brought the teacher a seashell of lustrous beauty. Where did you ever find such a beautiful seashell, she said. The youth told her that there was only one spot where such extraordinary shells could be found, a certain bay several miles away. Why, why it's gorgeous, said the teacher, but you shouldn't have gone all that way to get a gift for me. His eyes brightened, and the boy said, long walk, part of gift. And when we do even the smallest thing for the kingdom of God, it's part of the gift. And the Lord is pleased with such sacrifices. So maybe some of you have gotten the notion that God's always mad at you or that you're never quite doing enough. But this little Philippian church, by sending what I would imagine was probably a relatively small gift to the Apostle Paul, every time they did it, it went up to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. And I think that's the beauty of this text. And now a beautiful promise. And my God, Philippians 4.19, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, when we live this way, here's what we have as a promise. We can stand upon this. God will supply all our needs, not all our greeds, but all our needs. This is a story about a great pastor named Ironside. 
related to Philippians 4.19. Early in his ministry, Harry Ironside had an experience that illustrates this provision. On one occasion, he acted on faith, as he often did, to preach for two weeks in Fresno, California. But the time came surprisingly to him when he was entirely out of money and had no funds with which to eat. He was even forced to check out of his hotel room and leave his suitcase at a local drugstore to pick up later. There was some complaining and bitterness. And when the thought of Philippians 4.19 crossed his mind, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, his spirit rebelled. Why then doesn't he do it? He questioned. It seemed that God had promised, but he was no longer keeping his word. That night, as he settled down under a tree on the lawn of the courthouse in Fresno, God spoke to Harry Ironside concerning things about which he had grown careless. In his prayer and meditation, he experienced a spiritual awakening. From that time on, the work was better. It went better. Old friends appeared, first to invite him to lunch and later to provide accommodation. The church to which he was ministering took a collection to help him out on his return journey. At the end, he went to the post office and found a letter from his father, much to his surprise. He opened it, and there, staring him in the face, was a postscript that said, God spoke to me through Philippians 4.19 today. He has promised to, to supply all our need. Someday, he may see that I need a starving. If he does, he will supply that. Ironside says, oh, how real it all seemed then. I saw that God had been putting me through that test in order to bring me closer to himself and to bring me face to face with things that I had been neglecting. He wrote later that he wished to share the experience with others who may be going through similar times of testing. You see, when it says that God will meet all of our needs, Sometimes our greatest need might be to go in need. Y'all understand what he's saying? See, sometimes our greatest need is not to have everything right at our fingertips. Sometimes when the need is not necessarily right there, we start to do a little bit of introspection about our greatest needs, which are not necessarily material or physical but they have to do with our relationship with the Lord and spiritual things. And Ironside had an awakening that day. And it caused him to ask some deeper questions about where he was with the Lord. And the Lord did a beautiful work in his life. You can see the hand of God moving. My God shall supply all your needs from his limitless resources. Look at verse 19. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, everything in the universe is at his beck and call. Not one thing could he not bring into your purview or into your life if that's his will by his providential hand. And so this helps me to see that there may be times in my life where he's doing something different to get a message to me. And so we live with confident joy in the promises of God. One more story from, this is Boyce's commentary on Philippians. He writes, years ago, now, a delightful old French woman told me a story from her own life that illustrates this principle. In her youth in France, she had been taught to make a little box of Bible verses containing a selection of promises from, of God from Scripture. Each verse was written on a small piece of paper about the size of a piece of chewing gum. 
Each was then rolled up to make a miniature scroll. After there were 40 or 50 of these small scrolls, they were placed on end into a tiny open box. This was the promise box. She had been encouraged as a child to pull out one verse each morning and read it. One day during World War II, when she was much older, she was feeling terribly discouraged by many things that had happened in her life. In her depression, her mind turned to the little box of promises that had been long since forgotten. She went to the drawer of the dresser where she kept the box and took it out. And she prayed, Lord, you know how depressed I am. You know that I need a word of encouragement. Isn't there a promise here somewhere that can help me? She finished praying and stepped over to the window where the light was better for reading. As she did, she tripped over a loose edge of the rug, and all the promises spilled out onto the carpet. She immediately got the point and prayed again joyfully, Lord, how foolish I've been to ask for one promise when there are so many glorious promises in your word. The promises just spilled out of the box. And that is our God. And he knows right where we are, Sometimes when we have questions, even about scriptures that we've memorized as little kids, and sometimes we ask, Lord, what are you doing, and what's going on here? He knows what we need. He knows the most important needs of our soul. And now, the final verses. And now to our God and Father, 20, be the glory forever and ever, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel had even permeated to the emperor's household, probably through witnessing to the guards. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. New King James, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. Father, thank you for the Philippian letter. Thank you for the beauty of your word the wonderful promises in Christ that are yes and amen. Every promise in Christ is yes, yes, amen, yes. Thank you, Father. You are the God who makes promises and makes good on them, and we know you have our best interest at heart. I want to take a moment just to Muse with the people of God on this wonderful letter as we've learned so many incredible things. We've learned about the secret of contentment, how to overcome anxiety, how to run the race and fix our eyes on the prize, how to know that we can live, to live as Christ and to die as gain, how to be confident of this very thing that he who began that good work will complete it to the day of Christ and so many wonderful promises in between. And now this one, and my God, shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you love us that much, Lord. And you've taken care of our biggest need in our salvation in giving us your spirit, that great promise, that down payment of future glory. And we just want to take a moment to say thank you. May our lives be a thank you letter to our God. The way we live and the way we navigate this world, Lord, the messages we send about our priorities. Thank you for this wonderful church and the way that they have made the gospel really the most important thing in their lives. And if we've gotten off track with that, Lord, bring us back to where we need to be. With your head and heart bowed, just let the Lord...
speak to your life. Meditate on the truth that you've heard. Father, anything that's of me that's of no value, let them forget it. Anything that's from your spirit, let it move down into our souls as we say la, as we think and ponder the truths of God. If you're not a Christian, your greatest need is salvation. And the price has been paid in full by God. You have to have a moment when you repent of your sin and ask Jesus not just to be your Savior, but to be your Lord, your King. See, when you make Jesus Lord, you are saying, I have a new King, and I serve the priorities of a new kingdom. Maybe you need to do that right now. Maybe you have been a prodigal, and you've been wandering, and this is the furthest thing from your priorities. But you can come back and get things where they need to be. Thank you, Lord, that you're so patient. Let your beauty, the beauty of your grace, wash over your people. Strengthen, meet emotional needs right now, spiritual needs right now, Lord. Extend your hand of mercy in some of the relational things that are going on. Extend your hand to one who may be short this month financially and needs your help. I pray that you would just extend your hand, Father, and do your mighty work. We just want to tell you that we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.